If you have your, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to the book of Titus. We are continuing on in this very personal letter that Paul wrote to his young son in the faith who had left on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. The, the churches of Crete were in a, were a state of sad spiritual despair. They had wandered away from truth. They had poor leaders. The corrupted Crete society was beginning to creep into the churches. And Paul said, Titus, I'm leaving you there to put things in order and to appoint leaders and to get things back on track by teaching these people sound doctrine. And this is the way he puts it to Titus in this section of his letter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Father, these are very important words. They could easily have been written today. For the situation on Crete is much like the churches across the land and the culture in which we're living. 
People are drifting away from the truth, even churches from sound doctrine. And I'm praying, God, that you will raise us up as a people to always be faithful to the truth, to be able to teach and encourage others with sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For if we drift away from truth, we'll be following a lie. And I'm praying today, God, that you'll help us to be devoted to sound doctrine and good works. Teach us today, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just because you believe something doesn't make it true, nor does it suggest that you should go out and act on it. When I was a kid, I had superheroes. My favorite was Superman. I used to watch the old black and white George Reeves ones on Saturday morning. Are you old enough to remember the real Superman, George Reeves? Yeah, he's the real Superman. He could bend the barrel of a gun. He could shoot bullets off his chest. I used to love it when they'd stab a knife in him and the knife would bend over. My mom bought me a Superman pajama. I mean, this was the real deal. Had the logo, the pants, the red cape, the whole nine yards. And when I put that on, I was Superman. So one day I took a can of glass wax. This was before plastic. This floor wax came in a can, a squarish can. I shoved it up under my Superman outfit gave me a great big chest. And I took a rubber knife and I was going to jam it in that can and bend it over like Superman. So I said, hey, mom, I'm Superman. Well, I believed that my pajamas were going to hold that can up. I was wrong. I pulled my hand away to shove the knife in. Gravity took over that heavy can shot straight down, landed on my toes. I was black and blue for two weeks, dancing around the living room in pain. The knife bent over, but I didn't even notice because my feet were so sore. <laughs> Just because you believe something doesn't make it true, nor does it mean that you should act on it. One of my other superheroes was Popeye. Remember that guy? I hated spinach. It was a ploy by the spinach company to get kids to eat it. Remember Popeye? He ate a can of spinach and boom, boom. His muscles flared up. He could lift things, smash things. I'd choke down a can of this gross green slime in a can. And I'd go out there and try to lift something or smash something. All I'd do is hurt my back and bruise my hands. Just because you believe something doesn't make it true. Nor does it mean you should try to act on it. And folks, that's especially true when it comes to sound doctrine. You see, just because you believe something doesn't make it true, nor does it mean you ought to act on it. You have to know that it's true. That's why Paul told Titus, if you're going to teach people to be devoted to the gospel and good works, then they have to know that what they believe and what they're doing, what they're acting on is based on sound doctrine. Paul told Titus he was to put into order the things unfinished in the churches of Crete, and to bring people back to devotion to sound doctrine. That's why he told them in chapter 2, verse 1, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. If something is sound, it is solid, it is healthy, it's reliable, it's true. Doctrine means authoritative. In this case, 
We have a word, a doctrine, a system of beliefs based on the authoritative word of God himself. Sound doctrine becomes the basis for how we live and how we act, which is why Paul told Titus, people devoted to the gospel and good works will be devoted to sound doctrine. But the question is, how is sound doctrine seen? How do you grow it? How do you develop it in a church? Well, one of the ways, Paul said, is in your devotion to choose leaders who uphold sound doctrine and in your devotion to teach truth and model good works consistent with sound doctrine. Devotion to sound doctrine will be seen and developed when we choose leaders who uphold sound doctrine. That's why he said in verse 5, chapter 1, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Without leaders committed to sound doctrine, sound doctrine will soon be abandoned. You know, I grew up in New England, a place where they have schools like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth. When you hear the names of those schools, you don't think, wow, what a solid Christian institution. You think, what a seedbed of liberalism, progressivism, and humanist philosophy. But it wasn't always that way. In fact, you know that 88 of the first 100 colleges founded in America were organized to promote the gospel and the claims of Jesus Christ? 88 out of the first 100 were to train people to promote the gospel and Jesus Christ. Every collegiate institution founded in the colonies prior to the Revolutionary War, except the University of Pennsylvania, was established by some branch of the Christian church. And even the University of Pennsylvania, the first building they built for their campus was an auditorium to house the crowds of people who are coming to hear the great evangelist George Whitefield preach the gospel. In fact, there's still a statue of George Whitefield on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania to remind people of that. I wonder how many students even understand why the statue is there. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, they're all part of New England's Ivy League. And at one time, they were there to train people to promote Christ and the gospel. In fact, the first college, Harvard, was established, quote, for Christ and the church. That was their founding mission. In his bequest of the first large gift to what is now Harvard University, John Harvard said this at the launch of that school. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main ends of his life and studies, to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ 
in the bottom as the only foundation of all knowledge and learning and see that the Lord only giveth wisdom. Let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to see Christ as Lord and Master. Yale University, whose motto was lux et veritas, which in Latin means light and truth, there was a lamp of, for the light of Christ and an open Bible as a part of their early emblem. They would send out evangelistic gospel teams. When, Dwight, um, when uh, Timothy Dwight was president of the school, And at their commencement class of 1814, listen to what Timothy Dwight said in his commencement address to the students. Christ is the only, the true, the living way of access to God. Give up yourselves, therefore, to him with a cordial confidence, and the great work of life is done. You know, for a college president, a secular president, to say that today would be educational suicide. William and Mary was established for the Christian faith might be propagated. Dartmouth was founded to train men and missionaries to the Indians. So what happened? These great universities over time remained careless about the leaders they were choosing to lead those institutions. Harvard permitted freedom in matters of theology and made no religious requirement of college officers. And eventually... They became secularized by leaders who cared nothing for Christ or the gospel. Yale drifted partly due to concern for academic excellence amidst an environment of agnosticism and Unitarianism that was sweeping the colonies. So they, in order to accommodate the culture, began to dumb down their commitment to Christ and the gospel. Dartmouth and Columbia only had a statement in its charter about the great principles of Christianity. They had no sound doctrinal statement, and therefore they did not choose leaders who were going to be upholding those doctrines. Princeton yielded because of pressure from alumni. Princeton's charter demanded that they have a saved faculty, but they didn't have to have a saved student body. So what happened is more and more non-Christian people came into the school They were not being influenced for Christ. And so then they became the alumni that demanded that the school become more secular and began to drop their commitment to Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, was right when he said, I am much afraid that the universities will prove to be a great gate to hell unless they diligently labor to explain the Holy Scriptures and to engrave them upon the hearts of youth. I advise no one to place his child where the scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution where men are not unceasingly occupied with the word of God must become corrupt. He was exactly right. And this is exactly why Paul wrote to Titus, because this is exactly what was happening on the island of Crete. The churches, led increasingly by unscrupulous people, who claimed to know God but who didn't, began to set the tone for what the church was going to be about and increasingly was bringing the corrupt culture of Crete into the churches. They were abandoning sound doctrine. So Paul told Titus, appoint elders in every town who will uphold sound doctrine. The reason, verse 5, I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. 
Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Appoint elders in every town, men who are of great character, great conduct, and who hold to sound doctrine. Let them be the leaders of your church. We don't have time today to get into the whole office of elder, why it was to be men as part of God's design, which was a reflection on creation. If you want to understand more fully all of that and the role of women in the church and all of that, Pastor Phil did a great job when we went through 2 Timothy 3, or excuse me, 1 Timothy 3. When we went through that great book, he did a great job, one of the best I've heard, of explaining the role of elder and deacon and the role of women in the church. I would encourage, encourage you strongly for that. But the point of, is that today, Paul was telling Titus, you got to appoint men who are of godly character. That's why he said in verse 6, an elder must be blameless. To be blameless doesn't mean perfect or sinless. No man is like that. Blameless means that he lives his life in such a way that if anyone brings a charge against him, it will either be proven to be false or he has already dealt with it appropriately the way God has asked him to deal with it. He is blameless in regard to those things. He must be faithful to his wife. There's been a lot of discussion on that phrase. But at its very essence, he must be a one-woman kind of man. He can't be a philanderer. He can't be an adulterer. He can't be some guy that's in the church using his position and power to influence women for unhealthy relationships with him. He needs to be a man who is faithful to his wife. He cannot be an adulterer, a philanderer, a polygamist. In today's context, he would also be one who is not addicted to pornography or even looks at it. He's a one-woman kind of man whose children believe and are not wild and disobedient. Not perfect kids, but he has control of his household. And his kids are representative of that. Because he can't manage the household of God if he can't manage his household at home. So he's to be a man of godly character, but he's also to have godly conduct. Which is why it says in verse 7, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. There it is again. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. He's to be an overseer manager of God's household, the church. Elder is more a description of who he is. Overseer is more a description of what he does. A man of godly character is to be a man of godly conduct as he oversees the church of God, God's household. It's also the word for bishop, overseer. So he must be 
blameless. Things charged against him will be proven false or dealt with. He must not be overbearing, meaning self-willed or self-focused. He's not in this for what he can get out of it. It's not about how it affects him or whether it's convenient. It has nothing to do with him at all. It's all about Christ and the church. He's not quick-tempered. You cannot be a leader in the church if you are easily offended or anger begins to rule your life. He cannot be given to drunkenness. He is not under the control of substances or addicted to controlling influences. He is not violent. He's not a striker. He's not physically or verbally abusive. He's not pursuing dishonest gain. He's not in this because he's driven by money or power. He's not after any benefit to himself. It is for Christ and his gain, not his own. Those are the things he must not be. These are the things he must be. Hospitable. Literally a lover of strangers. Someone is using his home and inviting people into it to influence them for Christ. Someone who is inviting them into the church. He's not making barriers for unbelievers. He is opening the gospel to them by building relationships and influencing them for Christ. He's someone who loves what is good because God is the source of all good. He is self-controlled. By the way, self-control will be an aspect of everything Titus is to teach to every age group. Because what it means is sober-minded. These are the guys that don't need a team of people to hold them accountable. He is the same in private as he is in public. He's the same at home as he is in the church. He doesn't have a secret life because God sees all that's in secret. So he doesn't need a ton of people holding him accountable because God is his accountability partner. And the Holy Spirit of God is the one who's ordering and directing his life. He is self-controlled by the Holy Spirit. He is upright, meaning he is fulfilling all duty in every one of his roles. He is holy in thought, word, and deed set apart for God's use. And he's disciplined. He's consistent. He's not one way on Sunday and another way on Wednesday. He is disciplined in his daily walk with Christ. It's who he is. Despite, besides all of the character qualities and all of the contact requirements, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message. Verse 9. The trustworthy message as it has been taught. The gospel. He must hold firmly to it and not vary from it. So he can encourage those who hold the sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. People, there is nothing more frustrating if you're someone who loves truth and loves God and loves the word to be stuck in a place where people are not teaching it rightly. And nothing more encouraging to you if you love God and you love truth and you love doctrine and you love the word than to be in a place where they are encouraging you 
to be in the word, to follow this truth and to obey it. They also have to refute those who oppose it. Verse 10, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. You have to refute them. Paul said you have to prove them false by exhorting them with the truth. And you have to silence them, literally stop their mouths. You're going to do it by teaching truth and exposing lies. So that people will become so accustomed to the truth, they won't listen to that stuff anymore. Paul told Titus, the Cretans know from their own prophets and teachers how corrupt their society is. Verse 12, quoting from Epimenides, one of the Cretes' own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Rebuke them sharply. Cut that falsehood out like a surgeon uses a knife to cut out a disease. Use the sword of the word to silence them. Cut that out so people see it for what it is. Then they and others can be sound in the faith and pay no attention to Jewish myths and the rules of men who reject the truth. Well, why do they hold to the myths and reject the truth? Because they're after dishonest gain. You can't teach sound doctrine and promote yourself. I want to say this carefully because I'm accountable to God for everything I say. If you hear a guy in authority teaching things that's mostly about him, you ought to be very careful about the doctrine he's teaching. Paul said these false Cretan teachers were telling people to be pure and to be pure then you had to keep all kinds of outward external ceremonial rituals that they were coming up with. And he said them in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. Paul is telling Timothy, look, if you're really pure in doctrine and in your action and in your character, all things for you are gonna be pure, But if you're not pure, in other words, you only have this outward external, but inwardly you know you're corrupted, nothing you're going to do externally is going to make you pure. It's the same thing Jesus said when he spoke to the religious leaders, who he said were like whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, you have the robes, you say the right things, you're doing the right motions, but inwardly you're like dead men's bones. Mark 7, verse 6 He replied to them, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Hypocrite means to speak from behind a mask. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. 
You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Which is why he said in verse 14, he called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. These people who preached outward purity but inwardly were wicked are not pure, Paul said. They are corrupted. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. To the pure, the truly pure, who are pure on the inside, they can eat or participate in the rituals because they know that that isn't what makes them pure. They're pure within in thought and in deed out of devotion to Christ. But to the corrupted, no amount of outside ritual or dress or other things they do is going to make them pure. It, can't, it doesn't work that way. So don't be deceived by what these people are saying. He said, watch how they live in line with sound doctrine. Verse 16, they claim to know God. But by their actions, they deny him. They're not people of character. They're not of godly conduct. And they're not promoting sound doctrine. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. Paul did not mince his words. Detestable means disgusting. Disobedient. They're insubordinate. They don't, they're not an authority to God or anybody else. They're unfit. They're incapable of doing anything good. They are worthless. So Titus, you appoint leaders of godly character and conduct that flows out of sound doctrine. The doctrine they preach and the doctrine they live. Let them oversee the churches of Crete. Teaching sound doctrine and refuting those who oppose it. People, this is why we've always tried to appoint leaders at Golden Hills who uphold sound doctrine by what they teach and how they live. The elders we have here, including much of our pastoral staff, they're not perfect men. Neither am I. But they are to be blameless. And they are to exhibit these qualities. And they have to hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it's been taught. And I can assure you, for the leaders in our church, if they hear anything coming from this pulpit from me that doesn't square with this book, they're going to be all over me on Monday. And they should be. They're there for your protection. That's why God said you have to have people like this in leadership. And when those leaders violate that trust, they have to be removed for the protection of the church and to further the good works that have to flow from sound doctrine. People, good people disagree on some of the minor things. But when it comes to sound doctrine and the gospel, you have to have leaders that never waver. And they don't just preach it. They live it. And not only leaders who uphold sound doctrine and good works, but devotion to sound doctrine will be seen and developed when we choose to teach truth and model good works that are appropriate to sound doctrine. 
Paul said in chapter 2, verse 1, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Sound doctrine has to translate to sound conduct. Otherwise, the gospel is going to be maligned and it's going to be hard to convince anybody that Christ is true. I was reading in a book by James Emery White called The Traveler's Guide to the Kingdom a story about a visit he made to the Eagle and Child Pub in Great Britain, the place where C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and others used to meet. It's become a Christian tourist attraction. One day, he said, as I sat at my favorite little table and another stream of tourists entered and left, I heard the manager muttering, bloody Christians. I was enough of a regular to feel comfortable asking him what he meant. Take a look at this, he said, holding up a menu. They cost me two pounds each. Two pounds. I ordered hundreds of them, and now I only have ten because they keep getting nicked. You mean people are stealing them, I asked incredulously. Yeah, the bloody Christians. They take the menus, while the bloody students take the spoons and the ashtrays. Understanding students' obvious need for utensils, I couldn't help but ask, why the menus? I don't know. It's what they can get their hands on, I suppose, he answered. It got so bad, I started making copies of the menu that they could take for free. But they still take the good ones. I'm surprised they don't try and take what's on the walls, I said to him. Looking at the pictures, the plaques, particularly the framed handwritten letters from Lewis and Tolkien and others who used to meet at this pub. Those aren't real, he said. They're just copies. They'd all be gone. I don't put the real ones out. He paused a moment, and then he said, what gets me is that these people who come in here for Lewis and the others, they're supposed to be Christians, right? Yeah, I said, they are. And James White went on to say, the irony is bitter. The manager of the Eagle and Child Pub holds Christians and, one would surmise, Christianity itself in disdain because of the behavior of the Christians who flock to pay homage to Lewis and others, many of whom would not dare drink a pint of beer, but they will gladly steal. British historian Arnold Toynbee once said, most people have not rejected Christ, but only a caricature of him. They haven't rejected Jesus. It's only the picture of him that they've gotten to the people who say they follow him. Paul knew that if people were going to embrace the gospel, if things were going to turn around on the island of Crete, then those who professed the gospel needed to be examples of what sound doctrine looks like when it's lived out. Paul told Titus he must teach what's appropriate to sound doctrine. You must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. The you must is emphatic, meaning Titus, in contrast to the false teachers who don't, you must teach what is appropriate. Otherwise, the people will not know how to live. Appropriate means comely, becoming, that which agrees with or is consistent with sound doctrine. If you don't do this, 
Paul said, people are going to malign Christ and his word. The word is blaspheme. They're going to falsely accuse Christ of what he isn't guilty of. But if you do teach these things, people are going to live appropriately, which will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So Paul addresses specifically what's to teach each gender and what each age group needs to know if they're going to live this out. So he starts with the older men in verse 2. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. See, he starts with the older men because the older men have been at this a longer time. They know better. And by their age, they're intended to be the very examples that people look up to. You've been a Christian longer than us, so show us what this looks like. Once had a pastor tell me, he said, you know, we get some athlete who comes to Christ and we stick him up in front and he becomes the example everybody looks at and then he falls flat on his face. He said, I'm not impressed with people that have known the Lord for a a couple of weeks. I want to see people who have walked with God for 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years faithfully. Those are the ones I want to put up as my example. So you teach the older men to be temperate, literally abstaining from wine, to be clear-headed. There are men that must be clear-thinking and not controlled, clouded, or influenced by substances and constant temptations. They are to be worthy of respect, living with dignity and consistency that invites honor and respect. They are to be self-controlled, that same word again. These guys don't need a ton of accountability partners. These are guys that are on track with God. They are self-controlled by the Spirit himself, part of the Spirit's fruit. And they are sound in faith, love, and endurance. Their faith is in Christ. Their love for God and others is genuine, and they endure. Through the ups and downs, the blessings and the trials, the back and the forth, they remain devoted to Christ without wavering. The older women, verse 3, likewise teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Likewise, meaning as with the men, you also must be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, love and endurance. But be reverent in the way you live. Demonstrate a respect for God, your husband, your church, and the authorities. Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine. Not gossips with wagging tongues. Not women with addictive behavior. But women who teach by modeling in their homes what the good works are that are in keeping for a woman who lives in sound doctrine. That's what he's telling them. So then, verse 4, they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. They can be urged, they can be taught by the older women. Titus, you're not to teach these young women. I want the older women teaching them. I want you to teach them, I want the ladies to teach them what it means to love their husbands and their children. Show them what this looks like that they too need to be self-controlled. Pure inwardly and sexually, 
busy at home, literally keepers of the home, with the idea of guarding a sacred space. Be kind, interesting. Home demands can make a girl fussy and irritable. They must learn to practice benevolence with self-control and kindness, which is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Subject to husbands, voluntarily accepting the headship of her husband as part of God's design for her, the family, and the church. And Paul said, if you do this, you teach this, this will help to keep the word of God from being blasphemed and rejected by her family and others. And the young men, similarly, besides all these other attributes, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. And Timothy, since you are one of these young men, you set them an example. Verse 7. In everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Titus, as a young man yourself, set those guys an example so that they and all the people can follow it. Model for them what a life consistent with sound doctrine looks like and do it in such a way that even the people who oppose you will become ashamed of what they've been saying because your life will be such a model they can't say anything bad about how you're living. They may not agree with what you believe, but they can't deny that how you're living is consistent with what you profess. And slaves, you teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Slavery in the first century was primarily indentured servanthood, that people who needed money or a job or got in debt could sell themselves to a master who would provide them food, clothing, and shelter for him and his family, and he would work off that debt or work off that. His wage would be his daily living, he and his family. And that could go on forever, and a guy could choose to stay an indentured servant if he wanted. There was also forced slavery against people's will, but that was not as prevalent as this kind of slavery. So what Paul is telling him is, look, you teach the slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, live in such a way that their masters will notice how trustworthy, hardworking, conscientious, and diligent they are, and such behavior will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive when they see that even slaves who follow sound doctrine reflect Christ in their good works. You see, it's this type of indentured servanthood that makes so much of what they taught there very comparable to employees today. That as employees, we should be living and carrying out our duties in such a way that our masters, our employers, notice there is a difference in that guy. There is a difference in that woman. They are honest and trustworthy and hardworking and diligent. They care about the company. They care about our customers. They care about what they're doing. I've heard those people are Christians. I wonder if that could be the difference that I'm seeing. Paul said, you live like that, it can make the teaching about God our Savior 
more attractive. People, we can't live like this on our own. I can't. But God can. And by his grace, he can produce this life in those who are devoted to sound doctrine and good works. That's why next week, Lord willing, Pastor Phil's going to take this next section in chapter 11 and talk about the grace of God that is for all people. Does sound doctrine and good works really make a difference? I was reading from a book by James, uh, Rick James, A Million Ways to Die. And in that book, he was talking about the city of Cairo in Egypt that has its own unique version of poverty called Garbage City. Each morning at dawn, some 7,000 garbage collectors on horse carts leave for Cairo where they collect the garbage left behind by the city's 7 million citizens. After their day's work, they return to Garbage City, bringing the trash back to their homes, sorting out what's useful. In Muslim countries, there are certain religious restrictions on sifting through refuse. So the inhabitants of Garbage City are primarily non-religious people, or they are Christians. These are the poorest of the poor outcasts living among the outcasts. They are the outcasts of the outcasts. In 1972, he said in the book, a young Egyptian businessman lost his rich watch, wrist watch valued at roughly $11,000. As you can imagine, it would have been unthinkable to have a valuable timepiece returned by a member of Garbage City. And yet, an old garbage man dressed in rags found the man's name on the watch, tracked him down, and returned it. When he appeared at the young man's door, who was absolutely flabbergasted, this is what he said. My Christ told me to be honest until death. That was the only reason he gave. My Christ told me to do this. Because of the garbage man's act of obedience, which was rooted in the truth that he believed, the Egyptian mission businessman later told a reporter I didn't know Christ at the time but I told the garbage man that I saw Christ in him and I told him because of what you have done and your great example I will worship the Christ you are worshiping the businessman true to his word studied the Bible and grew in his faith to make a long story short they eventually came to Christ left their business, and they started a church that is still reaching out to the people of Garbage City. Simply because one man, rooted in sound doctrine, demonstrated the good works of what he really believed. You do this, Paul said, it'll make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Arnold Toynbee was right. Most people have not rejected Jesus. Only a caricature of him. Paul told Titus, you start calling people back to sound doctrine. Teach them what's appropriate with what they believe. Let the world see who Christ really is. Give them leaders who will lead the church and defend that doctrine. Let them teach and model these good works. And it will make people see who Jesus is. 
because they're devoted to sound doctrine and good works. I am so thankful to be in a church where there are so many of you who do that every single day. May you be encouraged all the more until Jesus comes. Father, thank you. These things are so powerfully important. And I pray, God, that you will help us always to be committed to sound doctrine, truth, the authoritative word of God himself, and have with it the good works that demonstrates to a lost and spiritually confused world the opportunity to see Christ in us. For your glory and our good, by your grace, let us be devoted to sound doctrine and good works. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.